Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. It is the Eurasia top risk. Ian Brummer's with us, the president of Eurasia Group, the driving force of what has become a G0 America. And joining us now, a gentleman from the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Joseph Kennedy is a former congressman because he went after that far-left senator, Mr. Markey, and went down in flames. That's the latest treatment that we've seen in the newspapers. The former unemployed congressman joins us uh, right now. Joe Kennedy, thank you so much for joining us. I would love to know your view of Mr. Biden as the last of your granduncle's Democratic Party what he needs to do to bring normalcy to the Democratic Party to find a Democratic center versus what is perceived by so much of America as a far left. Look, I think first off, good morning, um, and thanks for having me, and wonderful to be with you. Look, I think you have in the president-elect somebody whose service, whose dignity and decency, and at his core— a politics that is about building consensus and putting in that hard work to bring people together is literally defined who Joe Biden is. I think you're you're going to see that. We've already seen that outstretched hand to uh, an American public across the political spectrum to try to, as he has said many times, heal the wounds of, of these past years. The question is going to be, is that outstretched hand going to be met? And what we've seen already in the past coming days, you all just alluded to this, is from leaders of the United States Senate rather than folks that, for people that know better and know the damage that they might very well instill upon this country on our institutions and on our democracy, rather than trying to turn the page and actually restore our country to doing that hard work, are trying to put ego and political ambition ahead of the good of the nation. And I, it's not very often these days that I have been left speechless because I've been expecting um, mm-hmm. continued erosion here, but, but this is quite something. Not all grew up with your advantages, the history of you know, BBN in school in Boston and out to Stanford and such. Ian Bremmer took a different path. Tom Keene took a different path. And all of that was in a different America. How far is this 2021 America removed from that of your father, from that of uh, your grandfather, from the rest of your family? How far are we removed from the Kennedy of another time? Well, I think... Part of the challenges we're seeing is, unfortunately, uh, I think in many respects, we're not far enough removed from those challenges. The the number of times, Tom and and Ian and I have had this conversation as well, the number of times over the course of the past year, 18 months, that you hear these questions about comparing 2020 to 1968 are not insignificant. The battles that are on the front lines today about racial justice, about economic dignity, about trying to ensure that this is a country that actually meets its founding ideals of equality and a pathway for all, those are, that's what the end of the 60s was all about. That's what, these are the fights on the forefront today. And I think in many regards, the the challenge is that knowing what we know, that you've got a a government as an institution that continues to lag behind the will of its people. And, And very briefly here, I agree with what Ian articulated in these challenges, but you look at Look at what has happened on state ballot initiatives, on public referendum, on minimum wage, on voting rights, on health care. It is very clear where the country wants to go. The obstacle at this point is 
the government that continues to put up roadblocks and to prohibit our people from getting there. But Congressman, good morning from London. Is it that clear? I mean, many people still voted for President Trump. And how does Joe Biden actually bring the nation together? I've, you know, as, as Ian put it, it's, it's a, a very divided country, probably the most divided in the last couple of centuries. So a couple of things. One, when you look at those issues like ballot initiatives, there's a clear pathway forward. Their minimum wage has, raising the minimum wage has actually brought appeal across uh, many parts of the country. We've seen voting rights have uh, increased uh, um, popularity across the country. We saw that in Florida two years ago um, with the uh, ballot initiative that restored voting rights to convicted felons while Donald, uh, while Republicans actually won a governorship there and, and a Senate race and a very tight race. So there are, in fact, policies here that have widespread support. We've had a number of states that have increased access to health care through Medicaid expansion, yet having a Republican Party continue to put up obstacles to it. So I think on many issues here, it's not quite as divided as a Republican leadership or Republican base would like you to believe. Without question, it's a divided country, yes. I'd also point out that for all of the challenges we're seeing, we're not 1968. The challenges that we've seen, we haven't seen the level of uh, of unrest and violence in our streets that we've seen in other parts of our century. So, look, I'm not going to sit here and uh, try to kind of paper over the, the the real challenges we have. I think what you have here, though, is you've got a president, the, the voice of the American public that spoke and elected Joe Biden, has said we want to actually heal those wounds. The, the ultimate question is whether though that effort going to be met with a good faith effort by Republicans in Washington. Congressman, let me get in also Ian Bremmer. Ian? Yeah, I, I just wanted to say that uh, there's no question, I think Joe and I would agree, that um, Joe Biden has the temperament, the inclination, the experience to truly try uh, to reach across the aisle uh, and bring the country together. But, but no one's arms are long enough in this environment I mean, domestically, the ability to pass the two, three trillion dollar additional stimulus that clearly would be necessary this year, unless the Democrats pull off two seats uh, in the Senate races in Georgia um, tomorrow uh, is a dead letter. Um, and internationally, uh, there are so many that prefer to see Joe Biden to Donald Trump, but they also recognize that they don't believe that they can trust the United States going forward. They see how divided it is. They're skeptical. They understand how Trump could have won. And indeed, they're watching everything that's playing out in the United States right now is, is being magnified all over the world. And when I saw the Europeans cut that new Chinese multilateral trade deal uh, just a week ago, right before Biden becomes president, that's a hedge that's a really significant hedge from a lot of leaders that are thinking to themselves, I don't really believe that Biden's going to be able to accomplish what he says he wants to do. We can't come back to the United States that we once had and clearly so many people would like to see on the global stage. And Ian, I don't disagree with you. Yeah, um, and Congressman, to that, how do you think? Yeah. I say I, I don't disagree with you. I, I do think. Go that, ahead, Congressman. That, the optimist in me here just points out the fact that this is, in fact, a choice, right? This is not because Joe Biden doesn't want to get there. It's not because I think most of the Democratic Party wants, we, we do actually want to heal those wounds and move forward. What we need is Republican leadership to be able to meet us halfway. And what we've got, that, that is, in fact, 
what we're seeing play out. And I think uh, shocking ways so far to have 12 U.S. senators say they're going to actively dispute the certification of the Electoral College. And, and they know better. Right. Um, so I, this is the underlying fundamentals that you point out are, are I agree with. The question, I think, in large part is going to be left to American political leadership to have the choice as to whether they want to sow that disruption or they want to move our country forward uh, into a, a more powerful position in the 21st century. Congressman, has President Trump actually changed U.S. politics forever and U.S. democracy? Uh, he has certainly changed it uh, for the, the short and intermediate term. And look, I think that I 100 percent agree with Ian's analysis here that what you're seeing is essentially 12 Republican senators as of now that have uh, political aspirations that know that in order to be successful for the presidency, that they are going to need to have the support of a Donald Trump base. And I think that Donald Trump is going to remain the loudest voice in a Republican party until there is a, a next Republican president, or at least for the next four years. And again, that is a choice that Republicans have to make as to whether they're going to continue to countenance, forget the kind of irrationality or the norm breaking or anything else. Once again, mm -hmm. actions that border on, if not cross legality. And a, yet another reason why a president could and should be in my mind impeached. Because Joe, of what he just tried to do. Joe Kennedy, I want to circle back to where we were at the beginning of trying to stagger into 2021. Republicans, Democrats, all disaffected. Dr. Bremer, in his report, mentions college-educated urbanites is defining your Democratic Party. How does your party get to the labor-centric belief that was in other generations? How do you get back to labor support? What's the, what's the actual method of doing that? Look, the actual method of doing that is showing up and fighting for working families across this country. And yes, obviously, I think we would all agree we, we should be about expanding access to education and access to higher education. But that does not mean you leave behind people that, as we say, shower after work rather than before. That means that you got to understand that the policies that for uh, on all, a long time Democrats have championed about increasing access to opportunity that if people still didn't get them because of get that opportunity because of barriers domestic mm -hmm. or international, that they've not felt left behind, they have been left behind. And for Democrats to not recognize that and not turn around and say, hey, we're going to fight for you too, um, that has been Donald Trump's observation. And that's part of uh, success um, that he's had in his rhetoric, if not the political, the policy outcome. Success in the rhetoric right. that is a warning to all Democrats. Ian Bremer, within the top risks that you write up here on the United States of America, there's just the time ticking on, the demographic changes out into the 2030s, the 2040s. What do you perceive over the next one, two, three, and even five years as being the democratic shift in what it will do for our politics, a demographic shift, I should say? Well, one thing that's exciting um, is that when you look at millennials that are educated around the world, um, you're not just talking about white folk. You're talking about, you know, 
emerging markets suddenly dominating and sharing ideas. I mean, when I was a kid growing up in Chelsea, Massachusetts, in the projects, you know, not that far from Joe, by the way, you know, I, I, I didn't know any of those kids. I wasn't into K-pop, for example. I wasn't sharing. I wasn't on Fortnite, you know, sort of doing gaming with kids from India or Cambodia or whatnot. Millennials today are doing that. And one of the reasons why climate change is really moving, and if there's one place that Biden will truly be effective compared to Trump, it's in actually embracing a post-fossil fuel trajectory for the U.S. government and the U.S. economy, precisely because the markets have already been moving in that direction for some, for some time. But they're doing that because young people all over the world are connected to a global understanding that climate is going to screw them as young people in the future if they don't actually take action. So there are reasons to believe that millennials will be more global. They will be more connected. They will be less stovepiped. But but that is those are not the people that are running Washington right now. And, and that demographic shift you're talking about when so many Americans are feeling disenfranchised, when so many Americans are, 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 are taking it on the chin on the back of this coronavirus, not those of us in the knowledge economy that can socially distance, but those that are stuck, the essential workers that are treated like anything. But yeah. and that that gap, that gap is immense and painful and drives incredible risk and uncertainty in 2021. Ian, thank you so much. Ian Bremmer there of Eurasia Group. And we'll talk a lot more about climate change. And thank you to the former congressman, of course, Joseph Kennedy of Massachusetts. A quick look at the chart of oil. Maybe it is the chart here of the day. Brent crude when we knew it above $100 a barrel for a sustained time. And then the collapse of oil and, of course, the negative prices that we saw earlier this year back to $50 a barrel. That is a precursor for Daniel Jurgen. The new map is his new book. It's uh, my book of the year. It is just a beautifully written exercise in our geopolitics and, of course, of oil and the new oil, I should say, as well. Dan Jurgen, wonderful to have you with us here with Dr. Uh, Bremer. I need to go right to our immediate geopolitics. What should President Biden's approach be to Saudi Arabia and to Russia? I think his approach to Saudi Arabia will be measured. The Saudis have not been looking forward to a Biden presidency. Uh, there'll be uh, new stresses in the relationship, and there will be no sword dance, uh, as there was when President Trump made his first visit there. You're I think so. Uh, it will be a different relationship, and, and, and Saudi Arabia will be doing some things to try and, uh, you know, kind of ameliorate it, but it, it, it will be frosty. The I think on Russia, right. it's obviously what's... There will be always a discussion, how do we get back into some reasonable relationship with Russia? But after this massive uh, uh, cyber attack on government and private business, that's just going to make it much more difficult. So it starts off on a very bad foot. And you ask once again, what were the Russians thinking? What did they achieve by doing this? The commanding heights of oil at $50 a barrel. Are they commanding heights or is it a oil, global oil complex that is desperate and fragile? I would say it's more of the latter because while it's at, it is creeping out of that virus alley of 40 to 50, it's now just a little over 50 if you look at Brent. 
but you have a big overhang of oil uh, uh, supplies in terms that OPEC and non-OPEC, uh, OPEC plus are holding back. Plus, you have the question of whether there will be some dialogue between the U.S. and Iran that will relieve sanctions on Iranian oil. So there's a lot of overhang. But the good news is that as virus, you know, we it's not as fast as it should be, but as vaccinations spread, as the economies will open up again, one result of that will be more economic activity, and oil will get into an area that is would support future investment, which has really been cut very dramatically over the last year. Uh, Daniel, good morning from London. Are we going to see peak oil sooner than we think because of climate change action, because of concerns surrounding fossil fuel and carbon emission? Well, I, I think that is the probably that and energy transition are the two big questions that you run into in oil circles, energy circles around and climate circles around the world. I still think that peak oil, peak demand is probably about a decade away. We're seeing these announcements about uh, banning internal combustion engines, but there would be, be 2030 or 2035. On the other side, you're going to add another billion people or so to the world. Uh, economies hopefully will recover. And so I, I don't think it's as imminent as we think. And something else people forget is, in, for instance, in the United States, cars stay on the road for 12 to 15 years. They don't just go away somewhere. So I think it, it is an energy transition, but I think it's a longer process than uh, snapping your fingers. Ian, how do you see this developing? Well, it's so funny. I mean, you, you know, the, the lifespan of a, a horse uh, is about 12 to 15 years. And, you know, once you got the steam engine, you still didn't, you know, crush the horse population until after the existing horses no longer had a lifespan. And then you just stopped. And then within one generation, horses went to about 10 percent of what they were before. They became useful for entertainment and for food. And that was it. And the question is, is that where we're going with cars, with, uh, with you know, with emission, with, with uh, combustion engines? Uh, look, it's, it's an extraordinary change um, when you have the United States government with the, by far the most important uh, uh, appointment that Biden is making is, is uh, John Kerry, who ran for president, who was secretary of state, who believes he should have been president, certainly thinks he's smarter than, than Joe Biden. And he's and he's creating a new cabinet position that will be staffed to focus on climate, climate, climate. Uh, I think this is a massive shift. And, and by the way, I think one of the more interesting things that we're going to see over the coming year, as the <clears throat> Americans, as a polity, start taking this very seriously as a government, is that we're going to want to look forward after these mm -hmm. 10 years, when it's no longer as much about fossil fuels, who's going to dominate these new technologies. And, you know, under the Trump administration, if you want to talk about solar or wind or electric right. vehicle infrastructure, you're talking about China. So actually, this is going to create more geopolitical competition between the two largest economies, the U.S. and China, than a lot of people might have thought, thinking, oh, when the Americans talk about climate, it'll be kumbaya for everyone together. Actually, there's a lot more geopolitical competition coming. I think well, that's a very... If I can jump, if I please, can jump Dan, in there, please, I Dan, think that please. That means that means that uh, the supply chains, you know, the supply chains of oil have always uh, had a lot of tension around them. As Ian is saying, there's going to be tension now around the supply chains, because look at the way China dominates the lithium-ion battery supply chain. One thing about cars that's very interesting, if every car in the world today was an electric car running on wind and solar, you would reduce emissions, CO2 emissions, by about 6%. So you have to look at the whole totality in terms of really having an effect.
But if you look mm -hmm. at where the automakers are, their investment is certainly shifting to electric cars. So they see that there is going to be a tipping point. Daniel Jurgen, as Dr. Bremer mentions John Kerry, I sat on a stage in Davos with John Kerry, and he was really quite something. The facts involved, the knowledge base that he had on climate change. He also has a knowledge base that there is the U.S. Senate. Heaven forbid if one senator went from the prize and read it, and then they went to the quest and read it, and then they went to the new map and read it. Could you have a Senate that would go along with President Biden and support some form of political climate change policy? Or does the Senate block all? No, I think, well, it depends uh, what happens tomorrow in uh, Georgia, but uh, on that in a very near term. I think that uh, you would have people supporting it, but I think it's a question of understanding the, the time frames involved and the cost. And Ian's report uh, about uh, the risk makes, makes a very important point that may not be looked at right now, but it's the cost of COVID and the cost of dealing with COVID afterwards. So government's budgets are gonna be strained between what they wanna do in terms of climate and uh, energy transition on one side and actually continuing to heal the economy on the other. So there will be a fiscal pressure there that will also have to be part of the equation. Yeah, and you look at countries like Brazil yeah, and too, India uh, that tenuous? are very carbon intensive yep. on the back of all of this. That you know, it's going to be very, very hard for them in a post-COVID environment yep. to say we're yeah, going to move on in. and align with all these countries. Yeah, yep. Ian, is it too tenuous to make the link between you know Russia, oil-rich country, Saudi Arabia, oil-rich country, and what role they have to play geopolitically? So if Russia sees the price of oil go down, peak oil maybe sooner than we think, do they become more belligerent? Um, I think Russia is becoming more belligerent because generally they are a country in decline. Um, and they blame the United States for that. And Putin has control. Where in the case of the Saudis, I mean, I do think that this is going to move them more quickly towards diversifying their economy. It's going to, and they may not be effective, and some of the 2030 vision is obviously pie in the sky, uh, but, but I, I think they're going to be buffeted much more by their environment, where in the case of Putin, he's angered by that, he's lashing out. So belligerence is the right question mm -hmm. when you talk about Moscow. Ian Bremer with us. It is the top risk of 2021. And we thank Daniel Jurgen of IHS Market and, of course, his new book, The New Map, uh, most readable. Dr. Jurgen, thank you so much. Right now, not spin, but science. And I want to pause here and say that our team, all through 2020, I thought had great leadership on speaking to science and to political experts about how to handle this pandemic. David Nabarro will join us with the World Health Organization here, but I need to turn to the chairman of Eurasia Group, Cliff Kupchin, right now, on their take on 2021 and COVID. Cliff, before we get to Dr. Nabarro, help mm -hmm. us here with the distinction of your COVID risk. The COVID risk is that the scar tissue, the lingering effects, the effects, the economic impacts of COVID, are gonna go away quickly or easily for a few reasons. We, we will have within every country, the so-called K-curve, different socioeconomic groups recover at different rates. You so you have growing inequality. Uh, internationally, you will have different rates of recovery, a multi-speed recovery based on vaccine access and other rollout factors. So what, what will you have as a result of the scar tissue? Mm -hmm. You'll have instability. You'll have anti-incumbent anger. There's a lot of elections coming up in Latin America, for example. 
and you'll have a debt crunch. As, as, as lenders become more discriminating, a, a lot of emerging markets are going to have trouble getting capital. Right. And, and that's going to create big pressure in debt markets this year. David so Navarro, thank you so much for joining us. Thrilled to have you on through 2020 and for you to provide a voice here to start the year. I want to speak not about cases, which I can't count, or deaths which I don't trust, but the hospitalization surge and this insanity over the long weekend that we can't get vaccinated fast enough. What is the Navarro solution to jumpstart the rate of vaccinations and double-dose vaccinations? Thanks very much indeed. Uh, there is no alternative but to make vaccines available as widely as possible as soon as they get approved. I don't want any corners to be cut on the approval process. So each vaccine must go through their phase three trials and then be properly assessed by national regulators as well as by the World Health Organization. But that's the only option that we have if we're going to rely on vaccines to get this pandemic to subside. Just one last point. Vaccines won't be enough on their own. We will need to continue to pay attention to the rules that were set over the last few months about physical distancing, mask wearing, isolating when sick, looking after those who are frail and vulnerable, because these basic principles yeah. backed up by strong public health work at local level still will be key for the coming months, even years, to enable societies to get on top of this pandemic. Dr. Navarro, there were trials with vaccines and they told us, for example, Pfizer, that you take the first dose and then you have to take a second dose after three, four weeks. Does it make a difference and how much of a difference if you delay that second dose by months? What we're seeing now is more and more countries wondering whether a widespread use of a single dose of one of these vaccines may in the end be more effective at helping slow down the pandemic and reduce suffering than making sure that everybody receives their two doses at four weeks or so intervals. Right. Uh, I am not really at this stage able to come out uh, in favour of one option or the other because they are so situation dependent. The move towards a longer interval between vaccine doses <clears throat> reflects an anxiety in some countries that the situation is so intense that to protect health services, getting single shots into as many people as possible is the only right way to go. But as you picked up during the last few days, there's been quite a lot of controversy over exactly how to go down this quite experimental path. Yeah, there's also a lot of controversy and, you know, a, a lot of citizens calling it symbolic vaccination uh, programs because a lot of the European countries have the vaccines, but they're just not administering them quickly enough. Do, would you ask countries to be quicker to find more ways of, of finding pharmacies, for example, to administer these vaccines, not only hospitals? Yeah, so that what this really means is that 
the administration of vaccines must be thoroughly planned. Uh, we know from so many different campaigns that if you don't have proper planning at local, state, national, regional and global level for the use of scarce vaccines, especially when you're in a crisis situation, you can end up with a lot of waste and indeed quite a lot of potential errors being made. I really would like to appeal to every leader just to <clears throat> really slow down a bit on the right. rush to get the vaccine into as many arms as possible and put more time into systematic planning of what has to be a really okay, but, effective but, but, global operation. David, Sorry, you went right, David, you went right where I want to go. I want to go to you on this and then to Cliff if we have time. Dr. Navarro, this is real simple. It's about federalism versus state distribution as well. Do you have any optimism or any track record that the United States can provide a polio equivalent or a diphtheria equivalent from 100 years ago, 120 years ago? Can we do that with the state mess we're in versus a federal application? Well, you will anticipate, Tom, that I'm going to have to say not only should there be national and state planning that is done from the centre in the United States, there's also got to be global planning. This is a global pandemic, mm -hmm. accelerating fast. Okay. Just and we must have a global response. Okay. Just because of time, David, I want to let Cliff in here to be sure he has a voice in this. Cliff, do you see any ability of President-elect Biden to create a more federal mandate in America versus a state-centric mandate of President Trump? I think that President Biden, President-elect Biden, is going to have much more moral suasion capability, much more talent to do that, much more commitment to do that. These are states state programs. We have to get the funding to them. We have to enable the infrastructure. But I do think a big voice like, like Ms. Merkel has done in Europe is going to probably make a difference in making this more successful. It's the only hope we have. And I, I think we're going to get not to a good place, but to a much better place than we are right now. We've got to leave it there. We could go, we, well, all the guests, the quality of this with the top risks of uh, Eurasia Group, we could do a, We could do like a 10-hour show today, Francine. Maybe we ought to do that. Do a 10-hour show, an hour with Aren't Dr. Navarro, we an hour with yeah. the, uh, Mr. Kupchin and, uh, and Ian Bremer. It's going to be great. Dr. Navarro, don't be a stranger. Thank you so much for joining us with the World Health Organization. There's a special edition of the show this morning. Francine Lacroix in London. I'm Tom Keene in New York. And we've been doing this now for a good number of years with Ian Bremmer and Cliff Kupchin. Eurasia Group chairman is with us right now. The top risks of 2021. And I can tell you that December of 2020 was more than unusual, which makes for must-reading of their top risks. Look for that release today by Eurasia Group. It is really terse sharp reading on climate change, a wonderful section. I learned a lot, frankly, on the hacking and cyber threats. And I really want to draw your attention to their oil and climate paragraphs. And of course, Daniel, you're going to join us in the next hour. My book of the year, The New Map. Last year, the top risks of Eurasia Group absolutely nailed the challenges of Europe, not predicting a successful outcome to Brexit. It has come to pass, I believe. Joining us now is a gentleman from Germany with immense perspective on this, 
Sigmar Gabriel is a former German foreign affairs minister, but that barely touches upon his domestic politics of Germany and his association uh, with length of tenure, going back to Willy Brandt, among others. And we're thrilled that Mr. Gabriel could join us uh, this morning. Sigmar Gabriel, what will be the legacy of Chancellor Merkel and particularly the replacement of her European leadership? First of all, let me say hello and good morning to everybody. Um, if you ask me how the, the Germans and maybe others in Europe will look back to the chancellorship of Angela Merkel, I would say at first that during her term, it's at the end it will be 16 years, she will be seen as a leader which steered Germany through heavy waters uh, in difficult crisis which we were faced with. I remember when we started together in the government 2013, after a few weeks we had the Crimea crisis, then uh, uh, we had the crisis in, in Greece, then the Euro crisis, and then the end of the term, the refugee crisis. So uh, her, her chancellorship uh, will be seen as a uh, um, a successful leading the country and leading Europe through major crises uh, at the the at the beginning mm -hmm. of the century. Cliff Kupchin, just since you've written the top risk, we have of course seen a successful Brexit uh, negotiation. How do you and Dr. Bremer perceive Europe in 2021? Is it fractured, or can can it coalesce around a theme, perhaps, from say Mr. Macron? We think that the main challenge facing Europe is, is, is lack of leadership, that, that after the real Queen of Europe, Angela Merkel, steps down, Macron will take over. He'll be, as Europe's sort of preeminent leader anyway, he will be distracted by his own domestic politics. And, and we fear that if more, more stimulus money is needed, there's no sort of space for a creative new fiscal deal, that, that foreign policy could get very complicated with the Turks in the Eastern uh, Mediterranean, and that we could even see a resurgence of populism as, as the scar tissue of COVID really bites into European economies. So, so that's where we come out on Europe. Sigmar Gabriel, how do you think Europe should actually engage with China? And depending on investments or cooperation with China, will it weaken the relationship Europe has with the new Biden administration? First of all, uh, this is not a, a really big agreement. Uh, Europe and China is negotiating about an investment agreement since more than seven years. Uh, and uh, Ch China always asked the Europeans to, to uh, negotiate about a real free trade agreement. And the Europeans said, no, as long as investments from European countries in China are uh, in such difficult uh, they, as they were in the past, we will not be able to, to negotiate a real free trade agreement. So the precondition was to have a better and sec more secure environment for European investments in China. Uh, that's, that's, first of all, the, the starting point to these negotiations. You're right, um, uh, looking to the US and the bipartisan approach to China, um, uh, the new president, Joe Biden, will be not happy about these um, unilateral uh, approach from from Europe to China. On the on the other hand side, I think there is uh, enough room for, for for a common approach between U.S., Europe, South Korea, Japan, Australia, and New Zealand, 
uh, towards China, um, although uh, uh, the, the, the countries like Australia and others had a much more uh, developed uh, free trade agreement that the Europeans did uh, during the last week. So, uh, yes, it, it may be seen um, as a more uh, a strategic um, uh, um, uh, autonomous uh, approach from, from Europe to China, but, but on the other hand, I would say there's not room for maneuvers to join hands. Uh, Mr. Gabriel, uh, Cliff Kupchin there w was talking about, you know, a, a leadership vacuum in Europe once Angela Merkel leaves. Who's the right person to replace Merkel? Or even before that, we, we have a big vote on the CDU uh, coming up mid-January. Who's the right person to, to actually take on that role? I totally agree uh, with what uh, Cliff said. There is no person who will um, uh, be in the same position in Germany and in and, and Europe as well. Uh, w Germany is now in a period of transition. Uh, Merkel will go out of her office. Maybe she will more concentrate it on Europe as she did during uh, the very hot time of the pandemic. Uh, maybe she will not so um, involved in, in the German election campaign and more uh, uh, in, uh, in, in, in the European uh, polit politics, because there uh, she is interested to have a, a long, long seen legacy. On the other hand side, uh, France, of course, wants to be the new leader of Europe after Merkel, um, but uh, the country is uh, in a very difficult economic situation. And, uh, and uh, Macron is challenged uh, in the country, so I don't think that he will be so strong to replace Merkel in the leadership of Europe. And by the way, uh, the next elections in France are on the horizon. So that's, I think, the difficult situation yeah. in Europe. That's why Eurasia is right to put Europe at one of the top risks of the year 2021. Uh, Cliff Kupin, what does the Biden administration actually need from Europe in this pitiful, in their fight with China? Is there a role that Europe can play? Well, President Biden, President-elect Biden has, has rhetorically really distinguished himself from, from current President Trump by arguing the need to multilateralize China policy, by to de-risk the U.S. in a way with unilateral sanctions and this head-to-head -head slugfest that we've been seeing and bring in the EU, Japan, India, uh, encourage China to change these, these you know, perceived unfair policies by putting a, a, a broader squeeze on them. And that is our uh, fourth risk, actually. Uh, U.S.-China tensions broaden. Now, the Biden people were openly discouraging Europe from this, 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 this investment treaty, this investment agreement, and it is going to be a setback. I think they're going to need to find ways to put it back together again, to move forward with this with, with this broad coalition that they have in mind. Uh, and and the risk here is that we will see a global bidding war between Xi Jinping and Joe Biden over over allies. Uh, now that may be good for the allies, but it will just increase tension, I think, between the U.S. and 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 China. So what we really need from Europe is what the United States really needs from Europe is 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 
a creative way that Europe can still benefit from China's large and productive economy, but stay in sync with with, with mm. U.S. striving to bring them bring China around. That's going to be difficult. Mr. Gabriel, we're looking at the top risks that Eurasia Group sees for 2021, and of course, that's an international feel. But I've got to turn to the German election this year. It's a huge and important generational election. And Chris Ryder of our Berlin operation tells me very simply that this could be your conservatives and the Greens together. That is unusual, to say the least. How do you get a coalition developed in the new Germany, the future Germany? I would say uh, the coalition between conservatives and the Greens uh, is uh, something which should have happened four years ago. If you look to the German society, this is the coalition uh, the majority of the Germans uh, want to have. Um, uh, it, it was not able because they needed for, for years ago the liberals, and the liberals had the feeling that they would be the fifth wheel on the wagon, and so that they decided not to join the government, and that only was the reason that we have again a, a coalition between conservatives and social democrats. Normally, four years ago, we should have had a, a conservative green coalition uh, at that time with the liberals. Now, I would say uh, the perspective is to have a, um, a coalition between conservatives and the greens without any party. Uh, they will need nobody. And uh, in, in, in the terms of, of German politics, it, it will look like the next grand coalition, but only the second biggest party will not be the Social Democrats, but the Greens. But, but so, Mr. Gabriel, is a red-red-green alliance actually possible? Who has the most to lose on how the pandemic was handled in Germany? Of course, the, the, the government, and, and especially uh, the person who is responsible in the government, Jens Spahn, that's the reason I think that all the ideas that he would come out as uh, the, the, the new candidate for the, for the chair of the Conservative Party is, will, not, will not be the case. Uh, he's uh, in, a, in a tough uh, political position because um, uh, many criticism what, what, what was done during the last weeks and months, uh, um, he's at the center of the criticism. So I would say uh, he, maybe he as a person is in the biggest risk to lose, not Angela Merkel and not, I would say, not the Conservative Party as a whole. They will go down a bit uh, when people recognize that Merkel will not be the next chancellor. I mean, you must know everybody uh, in the political uh, arena knows that Merkel will not be the next chancellor, but uh, ordinary citizens are not very much um, aware that for the first time they will have to choose between different candidates for the chancellor's office. But uh, at the beginning of, of, of spring, people more and more will recognize, and then the conservative, uh, they will lose uh, uh, some percentage in the, in the opinion polls. But at the end, the conservative party will stay at the biggest party in Germany. You will not have a, a no. chance to get a coalition with, without them. So I'm, I don't think that, that there is any... Um, opportunity for a green, red, red coalition with the Greens and the Chancellor's office. Thank you so much for all of the insights. Sigmar Gabriel there, former German Foreign Affairs Minister, and Cliff Kupchin of Eurasia with his Top Risks 2021.
Good morning, everyone. Your Razor Group, the top risks of 2021. I've got 15 ways to go here with Francine Lacroix on those top risks right now. We could look at the markets up, the ascent of the markets for the haves. It's a beautiful chart in Eurasia Group on American income disparity and income inequality. Ian Bremer with us right now, Eurasia Group president. Ian, I want to fold in here something you were so prescient on, and that is China. And, of course, a stronger renminbi is a single uh, chart here about, you know, crouching dollar and the hidden weakness that we've seen in the dollar right now. Dr. Bremer, part of this is also the politics of China is noted by the two-month absence of Jack Ma within capitalism and within his business affairs. What is the symbolism of Jack Ma unreported to the China-U.S. dialogue? Yeah, it's quite something. Uh, I mean, Jack Ma basically has done a better job of antagonizing powerful actors than probably any other individual in the world. And, you know, that's a pretty dangerous thing to do. It's not illegal, but it's dangerous. I mean, you can ask Navalny, uh, the opposition uh, leader that was uh, poisoned uh, in Russia, uh, about that. Um, it's quite something. He's, you know, Ma's incredibly wealthy. He's prescient. He's a hero for the average Chinese. And that makes him a threat and unacceptable uh, to Xi Jinping and the leaders of China and also the fact that the Chinese government has decided and you look at their coming five year plan, this dual circulation idea where they focus more on domestic consumption, but also on securing Chinese supply chain for critical strategic sectors. And that because they see that the Americans on 5G, on Huawei, uh, that they've been hitting the Chinese pretty hard and they know that financial technology, fintech, where, you know, Ant Financial, uh, Jack Ma has been dominating, that is critical strategically to the success of the Chinese economy, the Chinese government. That means they want control. Right. So what is the, the, what? the fact that Jack Ma has said these things at the same time that this is that this fight with the Americans right. is coming down the pike has really created big problems. Global finance is global finance, certainly the purview of, of Bloomberg, uh, Dr. Bremer. What is the responsibility of Western banks and particularly American too big to fail banks within the U.S.-Chinese relationship? What should be their action plan, for example, on Hong Kong? I mean, the banks that are in Hong Kong aren't going anywhere. Uh, they, they, they understand if you're HSBC, if you're standard chartered, you understand that Hong Kong, as a critical node for doing business in mainland China, is much more valuable to you and your global business than standing up for Hong Kong as a Western uh, place where your expats can feel comfortable that there's rule of law. So they're dealing with the fact that Hong Kong no longer has a separate political system. There is no longer any democratic opposition in uh, the LegCo, uh, in Hong Kong, there is no longer any capacity um, to speak uh, your mind in a free and open media in Hong Kong. It is no longer a, a, a Western environment in any way, shape or form. The, the one country that's done something, it's not the banks, the fact that the UK, everyone's talked about how many mistakes they've made, but they are actually giving a lot of passports out. Um, to Hong Kong nationals uh, that, uh, you know, are, are basically getting done over by China, by the Chinese government not willing to support uh, one, system, one state, two systems. Ian, at number two for your top risks, you have long COVID. Are we underestimating 
how quickly our economies can bounce back once we have the vaccines? Um, I don't think we're underestimating that in the developed world. I think that the United States rebound will be fast and very robust. It's just that it's not going to affect as many Americans as I think we would like. Um, in other words, in, in the United States, in Europe, there's going to be much more division of are you in the knowledge economy, are you not? Are you able to socially distance, are you not? Are your jobs coming back? Have you been evicted from your, from your home? Uh, how can you handle the closure of schools for a year? These things are going to have major knock-on consequences for inequality and political and social instability across the United States and Europe where for the developing world, for emerging markets, and we talked with Dan Jurgen a little bit about this in the last segment, um, they're not getting vaccines as quickly as the United States and Europe is. They're not bouncing back as quickly, and their budgets are under a lot more strain. So you have divisions inside the wealthy economies, and then you have the growing gap between rich and poor countries in the world, both of which play out um, as long COVID uh, in 2021. Ian, thank you so much. Ian Bremer there of Eurasia Group with the top risks of Eurasia 2021. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. <laughs>